Hey everyone, I just wanted to give a quick disclaimer and intro up at the top of this episode to let you know that this interview with Alex Ketchum about lesbian feminist restaurant history was recorded originally back in September 2022 and was unfortunately one of the conversations that got pushed back with the health and technology related delays that I talked about in our last episode, which meant that I wasn't able to get it out before the publication of Alex's book and the release of her podcast. On the plus side, though, both are available now, and so you don't have to do any waiting. So yay! You'll hear at the end of the interview information on how to order the book and listen to the podcast, and the discount code that Alex provides is still valid for readers in the US to get 20% off the book if you want to check it out and it will be available to read for free via open access a little later in early 2023. This was a really wonderful conversation. I learned so much about feminist, queer, restaurant history, so many things about the connection between food and class and queerness and gender and business. It's a really great conversation that I hope that you will enjoy. We've always been here Every single year From ancient gaze right up to today's See, history is queer Some think it's a new way But we've got something to say History is very, 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 very gay Hello everyone. Welcome to another bonus episode of History is Gay. I am Lee Pfeffer, as always, and I'm sitting down today for an interview with someone pretty cool. We're going to be talking about lesbian and feminist and lesbian feminist spaces, like physical spaces, imagine that, that are not bars. In fact, we're going to be talking about things like cafes and bookstores and how does a business interact with being feminist and being anti-capitalist and things like that. So I would love to introduce Dr. Alex Ketchum. She is the faculty lecturer of the Institute for Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies of McGill University in Montreal. She's the director of the Just Feminist Tech and Scholarship Lab, and she's also the author of Engage in Public Scholarship, a guidebook on feminist and accessible communication. Her work integrates food, environmental, technological, and gender history. And what we're going to be talking about today is her forthcoming book, her second book. It's going to be available in the fall 2022. It's called Ingredients for Revolution, American Feminist Restaurants, Cafes, and Coffeehouses, 1972 to 2022. It's the first history of more than 200 feminist and lesbian feminist spaces like this in the United States. So hi, Alex. Hello. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Thank you. Yeah, um, I'm excited that we get to chat. I think you reached out to me a couple of months ago, just in general about podcast things. And you were also coming to San Francisco for the Queer History Conference and doing a little bit of research with the institution that I have my day job in. And so, you know, we're getting an opportunity to talk a little bit more about your work. So could we just kind of start with you is, you know, tell folks listening a little bit about you and your background. You're in these tech and accessibility spaces that kind of intersect with gender. Yeah, for sure. So I guess on the personal side, I identify as queer or bisexual or pansexual, a white settler. I live in Montreal, Canada, 
or Jijoge. I love history, especially LGBTQ history and feminist history. Sometimes people ask why I've spent so much time on the topic of feminist restaurants and kind of lesbian and queer women's feminist restaurants since I started working on this topic in 2011. So it's been more than a decade. And I got into it because when I was an undergrad doing my bachelor's at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, I was really involved with the school's organic farm and I was doing feminist studies and taking classes in history. And I was working on this honors thesis project around basically food and gender history and issues of payment and labor. And I had a friend say, hey, well, you're into food and feminism. Have you ever been to Bloodroot? And I said, what's Bloodroot? And the friend mentioned, oh, it's this feminist restaurant that's existed since the 70s over in Bridgeport, which is about a 30, 40 minute drive from Middletown. So a few friends and I went over, I visited, I thought it was so amazing, so cool. And basically, I have just spent more than a decade working on this kind of history of Bloodroot. And as you mentioned, more than 200 spaces in the United States um, since that point. Yeah, I mean, that kind of answers the the first question I was going (laughs) to ask you, which was just like, how did you get into this work? How did you go into the topic? I wanted to ask, you know, you start out with discovering Bloodroot. Did you initially set out in this project to like write about explicitly queer spaces? Or did you start from a different spot and find that that's just what kept coming up? Yeah. Like, how do you define for the purposes of the book and the research, like a feminist bookstore, cafe, coffee house, etc? Yeah, I love that. And it's, it's basically two questions, or at least I'll answer it in two parts. <laughs> yeah, so- <laughs> I answer, I answer, I ask two, I ask multiple questions in one question. I don't know if you've noticed yet. But yeah, no, I really love this question. So I first got into it thinking about feminism and food. It wasn't explicitly lesbian feminism that I was thinking of in particular. I was really just kind of thinking about gender and food ways. And I originally thought that maybe feminist restaurants were a way of combating unremunerated, unpaid domestic food production, like cooking and cleaning in the household, a way of kind of Mm -hmm. using these skill sets that are oftentimes seen as traditional women's kinds of crafts or labor, such as cooking, which is often done unpaid this kind of reproductive labor, and actually finding a way to get paid for it while also supporting other kind of feminist causes, organizations, and so forth. That's how I kind of got into the project. But over time, it became evident that many of these spaces, not all of them, but the majority, were run by women who identified as lesbian or maybe later in life identified as queer or bisexual. But most of them were identifying kind of as lesbian feminists at the time. Some of them were identifying as socialist feminists or lesbian, but yeah. Um, And so the reason why this project over time became more and more explicitly about lesbian and queer women in part happened during an interview that I had in New York City with someone who was involved with one of these women's coffee houses. And she said, hey, I want to really emphasize that I want you to make sure not to erase the importance of lesbians in this work and during this period. And that really stood out to me. And so I made sure to like honor that. But it was also what was happening in the historical record. I think another part of it was that even though I've been out as bisexual since I was around 17, 18, 
I mean, you know, you're always coming out in different ways in your life, (laughs) but, you know, more publicly out and, you know, more of the questioning early in high school. But even still, it wasn't actually until I got towards the end of my PhD dissertation after working on this project for years that I even fully realized that a lot of this was about trying to make sense of the kinds of spaces that I wish I had more of in my life and also understanding my own desires for these permanent or at least more permanent fixtures of queer spaces. As many of us know, especially lesbian and queer women spaces are harder to find besides kind of pop-up events today. So I think part of that was also a personal journey in understanding a bit more about my own identity. And I actually laughed because this was in 2018. So I'd been already working on this project for more than seven years, seven, eight years at this point. And I had an article out called The Place We've Always Wanted to Go But Never Could Find. And it wasn't until then I was like, oh, yeah, I think some of this has to just do with what I'm looking for. And it took that long. (laughs) Um, so yeah, so the process of self-discovery through like, I'm just really curious about this topic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, it, you know, I think there's many ways that we can be out to ourselves and to others, but still not fully understanding who we are, what we want. And also those desires change over time. So I think there is also a bit of a personal journey in this too, around the definitions But the reason why the book says feminist restaurants is because that's actually how the restaurants viewed themselves and how they marketed themselves. And there's a variety of reasons for that. So you had asked how I'm defining a feminist restaurant. And I didn't want to be overly prescriptive with the term. Feminism, as many of your listeners know, is a debated term. There's different types of feminism. And I wasn't interested in saying this is what feminism is and this is what counts and what doesn't. I was interested in why people would call their restaurant a feminist restaurant in either the title. So Bloodroot's actual name is Bloodroot Feminist Vegetarian Restaurant and Bookstore. It's like very explicit. Mm -hmm. Or there's a lot of restaurants from the period in the 70s and 80s that would be something called like Artemis or full moon, this kind of nature imagery, or kind of goddess imagery. And then on their advertising materials or business cards or in documents or ways they communicated with the public, they really emphasize that they're a feminist restaurant. So they basically had to call themselves feminist in some way that they communicated with the public in their publications, or as I mentioned, kind of advertisements or name. And then I kind of have these spaces that it's not 100% clear what they were, because all that exists that remains is a business card or a listing in a periodical or a journal or on a concert flyer. So sometimes it's just kind of in this ephemera that I found places or in lesbian women's travel guides, such as Gaia's Guide or Gaia's Guide. There's some debate over the pronunciation, but I went through every edition and kind of tracked the spaces in those. So sometimes I just have a name of a place and maybe a star ranking of saying like, this is feminist or this is for lesbian. So sometimes it's like a little unclear. Mm. So some places I know a lot about like Bloodroot since it's existed since 1977 and still exists today, right? It's easy to find the owners, ask them questions where some places if all I had was one name under a town and it was just one year entry and I can't connect with anyone anymore, you know, it's kind of in this unclear space. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I really resonated with what you just said about like coming into this and realizing that part of it is what you realizing what you're looking for. And I, you know, as someone who is 
really knowledgeable about the history of like queer bar spaces and queer spaces that are are focused around nightlife and drinking. There's so much important history there, but that's also a very specific type of like queer space and queer gathering. What are the differences that you saw or like came across in your research in regards to how space and community was found and used between something like bar culture and these quote unquote like daytime establishments as I could think of them? Yeah, for sure. So there's a lot in that question. One big part is the role of alcohol in this space. So some feminist restaurants were founded in order to be sober spaces, some as another alternative to bar space, as many listeners might know. There's definitely some issues around um, discussions in the kind of 70s and 80s about roles of alcoholism within lesbian communities or some people just not wanting to spend every night in a bar right? This isn't to put bar culture down. Bar culture is super important for lesbian, gay, bi, queer history. But it's nice to have a variety of kinds of spaces, especially for people who are trying to be sober, people who are recovering alcoholics. It wasn't always where they wanted to go was to a bar. Also, there are some discussions around class differences of who's frequenting different spaces between bars and restaurants. But also the restaurants, oftentimes the people who are running them, this isn't the case for all of them, but for some of them, they really just want to have a place where they were feeding people and kind of creating community around food and kind of nurturing that kind of community. It wasn't that they weren't open at night, right? So a lot of times they would host <laughs> concerts, there would be poetry readings, there would be well-known activists, musicians, artists coming into the space. They were community centers in many ways. They had feminist art on the walls. They also supported quite a large amount of contractors that were usually either feminist or lesbian identified or at least women. So like trying to find a woman plumber in the 1970s sometimes could be hard to find trades women. But there was this idea of like supporting other women and not exclusively lesbians. But again, there's variety in the spaces. The other thing is it changes the demographics around age. So for example, there was the Common Women Club in Northampton, Massachusetts. So woman was spelled W-O-M-O-N because there's a lot of playing with the spelling of women, which, you know, today sometimes is marked to be trans inclusive. Sometimes today it's marked to be trans exclusive. Here it was mostly about taking men out of the word women when we were seeing it kind of in the 70s and 80s. But at this club, they had discussions about should we get a liquor license or a beer and wine license? Because it could definitely help keep a business more financially stable. Alcohol can actually help restaurants economically thrive or at least meet their ends. But they decided not to because on their opening night, they had a little girl who was around, I think, seven years old come in and give a quarter to be a member of the Common Women Club. Aww. So they really wanted to be for all ages of women. And so sometimes if you have alcohol in a space, that changes the age demographics of who the space is for. But there was a lot of debate and discussion with many of these places about whether or not alcohol would be served or if it would bring your own kind of alcohol. So it really depends. But yeah, I wouldn't see them as oppositional necessarily, but instead of being part of what I call a feminist nexus sometimes, where you have some of these club spaces or bar spaces, you have feminist bookstores, which they'd be included in my work if they sold coffee or tea or had kind of like pastry, you know, 
sometimes bookstores have that because it still creates a space to linger with food. So that's kind of what I see as being the difference. And then you might have the feminist credit union. So they all kind of can work in conjunction. And you'll have some folks that are going to all of these places, some folks who won't be, right? But it is a bit different than the history of nightlife. And the reason I made it restaurants as well, not only my interest in food, But when I first started the project, I didn't really drink alcohol, and I was interested in kind of histories that weren't centering alcohol. And there's also a lot of great books about the histories of lesbian bars and lesbian bar culture and queer bar culture. It's still a topic that can definitely use even more research, and there's some great upcoming research happening today as well. So, you know, there's always a different way to explore it, but I wanted to center food. Yeah, I mean, talk to me a little bit more about that aspect, that that angle of like food and how the politics of food and food preparation fit into these kinds of spaces that are disrupting norms. Definitely. So yeah, so food is pretty central to many of the feminist restaurant ideas of why they're feminist. So many of them were vegetarian. It wasn't exclusively, but for the ones that were vegetarian, they often made their menus vegetarian or at least had some vegetarian items because there was a connection in their minds between the oppression of women and the oppression of animals and this kind of eco-feminist understanding of how oppression works. There was also connections between just how meat eating impacts the environment and also seeing how environmental degradation impacts women disproportionately. So you have that kind of connection. Also in terms of cost, that it's easier to have vegetarian foods. Many of them won't spoil as quickly as meats or dairies. So that's definitely part of it. The food that they were making was usually tied to their feminist values and their understandings of feminism. So this happened in a few ways. There's ways in terms of how they source the ingredients. So some of them are very attuned to where is the food coming from? How are the farmers being paid? Where are the ingredients? Are we eating locally? Are we eating seasonally? So these discussions were happening in the 70s and 80s. And you can also see this in kind of similar feminist restaurant spaces today. There's also discussions around the food of who's cooking the food. Are they being properly compensated for the food? Are we going to shift who's cooking the food? Are we going to mix up who has certain roles in the kitchen? So this focus on labor with food. There is also what kinds of foods are we going to celebrate? How are they linked to different cultural traditions? So a lot of women who started feminist restaurants were Jewish, like way higher percentage than the population at large. And so many of those women actually connected the tradition around Jewish cooking with their own views of feminism and taking care of people. And so you see different ways of like certain Jewish foods appearing on menus. You also see different cuisines that represent people who work in the space. For example, Bloodroot, many of the women who work there bring in their own cultural traditions. So there's like different ways of taking people's own experiences and bringing it into the kitchen and sharing that with others. You also have the naming of the food itself. So sometimes the menus would maybe not explicitly appear to be like feminist food items in whatever you're imagining, but maybe... (laughs) each item on the menu would be named after a famous feminist figure. So sometimes it was just kind of like a labeling or marketing around the food. And then also there's the issue or matter of whether or not there's going to be waitresses serving the food. And most of them got rid of waitresses or anyone coming to the table. Usually it was 
this isn't the case at all the places, but there was kind of this move away from that because of the power hierarchies. And many of them also had cutouts in the kitchen. So you could see into the kitchen. So there wasn't the same kind of division between the people eating the food and the people cooking the food, right? They wanted more transparency about that labor and to highlight that work. So we might call it an open concept kitchen today, but it was kind of before that was labeled as such. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really telling that a lot of these kind of popped up in the 70s when there is a lot of emphasis across the queer community, but also just kind of in general on like coalition building things happening like Coors Boycott and a lot of solidarity between LGBTQ rights movements and uh, Chicano and workers rights mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, working with Black Panthers. What role did these feminist spaces kind of play in that larger coalition building that was going on? So just on the matter of food, right? So for to support certain farm workers boycotts, there was boycotts of, for example, grapes at a certain time. Um, you also have boycotts of orange juice during uh, the Anita Bryant mm-hmm. stuff. If you think about the Brick Hut Cafe in Berkeley, they were mostly a breakfast kind of style cafe. And there was kind of debate within the collective that ran it. What are we going to do about orange juice? Most of the collective members wanted there not to be orange juice because of the save the children rhetoric that was going on. And then there's one member like, what are people going to think about a breakfast cafe that doesn't have orange juice? <laughs> orange juice, yeah. right. And I want to be clear, they weren't just a breakfast cafe, but... They serve breakfast. That, that was their yeah. that was their primary, yeah. Yeah, they had other foods, but people would come to eat their blueberry muffins or their pancakes, and they had multiple locations over time. They changed, but they had different patio places for people to sit. But yeah, so you have that in terms of like boycotts or what kinds of foods are used, or even in feminist restaurants and cafes today, Lagesta Yearwood, who is in New Paltz, New York, and also has businesses in New York City. Uh, so she is really, really explicit about the sourcing of the ingredients, the farmers that she's working with in kind of the Hudson Valley and stuff like that. So there's really like a lot of attention to other workers' rights, labor rights, labor movements. You also have in terms of the kinds of speakers who are being invited to come into the space. Now, it's important to highlight that many of these spaces were owned by white women. And there's a variety of reasons for this. Prior to 1974 and the passage of the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, women couldn't get credit in their own name. It had to be in their husband's or their father's name. So you already have this barrier that like makes it way harder to start a restaurant or a business. It's already hard to find a loan to start a restaurant, but especially as a woman during that time period, especially as a lesbian woman who might not have a husband or a father who would support this business, right? And then you also have many women who are like working or middle class trying to start these spaces. So that's more difficult. There were different efforts to have what we'd call crowdfunding today and hosting events and other people chip in money. But again, you're getting money from oftentimes a community that already has less money. So to also then deal with systematic racism on top of that is another barrier. There were spaces that were coffee houses, which were like weekly or bi-weekly kind of recurring spaces that happened in community centers or church basements that kind of met some of this need. But because of who was running some of these spaces, 
that also impacts who's being invited to the spaces. Mm -hmm. So there is anti-racist solidarity that happens in these spaces. There's discussions about other kinds of social issues around environment in these spaces, but it's also important to notice who is like doing the inviting, right? So it depends on the space, the collective, right? You have Las Hermanas in like San Diego that's emphasizing Latina women's experiences and the kinds of speakers that they're bringing are different than necessarily the Iowa Women's Coffee House in Iowa City. So that's important to know in terms of who is finding solidarity. But there was a lot of activism happening out these spaces. And there was a lot of emphasis on like, what are the social issues surrounding us? Feminism was obviously a primary emphasis. But before the coining of the term intersectional, there are discussions that we would say are intersectional today. Well, and I think that's that's a good entry point into, you know, the the elephant in the room that comes up whenever you talk about lesbian X, Y, and Z or lesbian feminist X, Y, and Z is you're, you're always going to, especially in the context of looking into the past, looking into, you know, the 70s and the 80s, even into the early 90s, that lesbian spaces or lesbian feminist spaces can sometimes end up synonymous with separatism with radical feminism quote-unquote things that we would call now like turf ideologies and being you know anti-trans or trans exclusive what challenges did you come up against in doing this work in, in that kind of sphere of like honoring this history and acknowledging those difficult points and also kind of moving forward and what the future is yeah, definitely. So that's, there's a lot of components to that question to speak to. So on the one hand, there were definitely discussions within the spaces about what it meant to be a woman's space. So you really have in the 70s and 80s, there's discussions of like, we're a woman's space, we're a woman's coffee house. And even people who went to the spaces, there's meeting minutes where people are like, what do we mean by a woman's space? Are we saying we're a lesbian space? Shouldn't we just say the word lesbian? And then there's this whole thing. Well, if you say lesbian, maybe questioning women won't come. You know, there's a big difference between going into a space that is women's and there's a lot of lesbians there and you can make friends with people or find lovers or partners or people to date. But there's something about once it's labeled as a lesbian, you might feel like you're locking yourself into something, right? So it can also serve as kind of a form of protection and coding in that other people might hear, oh, there's a women's meeting, right? And so they might think, okay, well, women had meetings. There's also this kind of codedness, right? So we see that with the women's music movement with Olivia Records, where it's a lot of like lesbian music, bisexual women's music, right? Queer women's music, but it's called women's music. There's also, uh, so there's debates about like what it means to be a woman. And you have in some of these coffee house and restaurant discussions, if you look at old meeting minutes about well, what about at the time, oftentimes they're using the word transsexual, but transsexual mm -hmm. or transgender or trans people. And, you know, I think a lot of times when people first think about these histories of spaces that are marked as lesbian, they assume that they're always hostile to trans people. And that's not the case. There definitely are examples of people who are hostile and prejudiced against and oppressive to trans folks. And I talk about that in the book. But I also talk about the ways that there is also trans inclusion. So there's a lot of discussion about what does it mean to be a woman? Which kinds of women are we talking about? And this also brings in discussions where it's like, okay, collectives such as in Minnesota, 
where they had a lot of discussions. They took good meeting minutes. I got to listen to tapes of their old discussions too, where they're debating about things, these open committee meetings that someone decided to put a tape recorder in the middle of the room. And you just hear all these voices going back and forth. And it's like, well, what kinds of ages of women are we trying to target? They also had separate groups called like old dyke nights, which was like over 35 was how they're defining old. But, oh man, I'm yeah. an old dyke. Yeah. So they had, they had right discussions around that. They had discussions about why isn't mostly white women coming here. And then they created a committee in which they then decided to make a third of their programming be about issues that centered around non-white women inviting non-white women speakers and musicians in. They create anti-racism workshops. And they also changed some of their um, ways of getting people to join the collective. So there's a lot of really deep thinking about what is wrong with how we're set up in that like black women don't want to come to the space, for example, and even discussions around what kind of music are we playing? Like who is made comfortable here? What ages of women are comfortable here? Discussions around accessibility, which usually had to do with questions of class, actually, when people talked about accessibility at that time. So how can we have prices for tickets that like working class, lesbian, single moms can afford? Discussions over childcare and can moms come to the space? Can we hire someone to watch kids? There are discussions around in Minnesota was held in a church basement. And so it was like, well, we need a ramp. And so trying to work with the church to get a ramp uh, into the space. Also, discussions around smoking were a big thing. Like, will you allow smoking to be in this space? Right. Because we need to remember bars and restaurants at this time. People right. were just smoking <laughs> everywhere. Right. Especially depending on the state and the year. But like smoking was very prevalent. So should we allow smoking of tobacco? Should we allow smoking of weed? What about other kinds of substances? What about alcohol and so forth, right? So there's a lot of discussions around who is the target group that the like people who are managing the space want to include. And there was a lot of introspection and debate around this. So I think it's important to look at these histories critically, but not erase them from our memory and from the record just because we don't agree with everything that they did. I think in doing so, we lose sight of some of the kinds of solutions that they came up with that were useful so we don't have to reinvent the wheel. But I think it's also important to see some of these histories that bring us to today, where we come from, mistakes we don't want to recreate or replicate. And also, it reminds us that we are also going to mess up. In our activism, we're going to make mistakes. And I think it's important to see how many of the people running these spaces made mistakes and how they adapted or how they've changed over time. And so I think that also serves as important lessons because they weren't perfect and we're not going to be perfect in the work that we do either. That gives a a really good kind of jumping off point into talking about like what your research process looked like. How did you go about crafting the narrative? And, you know, like you just said, you get to see these businesses, these collectives, these institutions, like making mistakes and changing along the way. Did you get to like follow the the trajectory of a bunch of these? Yeah, so it really depends. It was a very a mixed methods kind of project. So my starting place was Bloodroot, right? I visited it in person. I met with Selma, Miriam, and Noel Fury, who run it today, and I did some initial interviews. So that was me as like a baby undergrad student kind (laughs) of doing that, and I was able to get some money from the university to visit Harvard Schlesinger Archives at Radcliffe, and that's where I found information on Bread and Roses in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 
And I also visited at Duke, the Sally Bingham archives. So that was kind of my first entrance point where I got to just kind of go to some archives, see what came up when I looked for feminist restaurants, kind of feminist food stuff. From there, I started to develop a methodology in which I was looking at basically any feminist periodical I could get my hands on and look in the advertisement section. Sometimes there would actually be articles on some of these places, but usually it was in the ads. So I was like, okay, where are they advertising? Or later I started to, so I did this thing where I actually contacted every LGBTQ archive in the United States, at least everyone that was listed in the American Archivist like Association Lavender Guide. And so I contacted all of them and said like, hey, this isn't quite probably show up in any like subject headings, but of what you know of your collections, do you, do you know of any right. examples? And sometimes there wasn't anything in the archives, but the archivist was like, oh, there's nothing in here. But back when I was young, I used to go to this place or my right, friend. I remember this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then I was also kind of people would connect me to other folks. There was also, like I mentioned earlier, I went through lesbian and gay travel guides and just went through all the directories and I used that to create maps. So I basically used those guides to do some mapping as well as the stuff I found in periodicals, things that people mentioned to me, and also if there was anything in archives. So I used 19 different archives for this project and sometimes they would just have one box of stuff or sometimes there would just be an ephemera box. So for the GLBT Historical Society, the ephemera stuff was really useful for me to find flyers. Also just finding touring musicians flyers where they list all of the gigs they were going to do because they would go from coffee house to restaurant to bar to coffee house, restaurant, bar type of thing. (laughs) And so they actually served as this amazing networking tool across the United States. And also for my dissertation work, I looked at Canada too, but that's not in the book. But but like across the US and Canada and even around the world, right? So you can look at Alex Dobkin's posters and find out stuff. Or you see the same Alex Dobkin poster in a bunch of the different archives in people's like own different restaurants and coffee houses, own records, right? So that was really useful. Some things I also added to the book were there's also been some amazing oral history projects that have been happening. So I conducted my own interviews for the project, but I also was able to benefit from other oral history projects. So the Treader has an oral history project in which there's some great interviews about kind of a lesbian life in the Midwest. And I really encourage folks to kind of seek out some of these oral history projects that are open to the public. If you're just interested in hearing people's own reflections about their lives. I also created the feministrestaurantproject.com pretty early on, around in 2013, 2014. And I just started putting up some of my initial directories. So a kind of cleaned up version that just had like names and like dates I thought that they were around for, which as you know, with travel guides, they're not really that accurate. You know, places will have already gone out of existence the first time they're mentioned or stuff like that. But Uh, just the dates that I had. And I encouraged people to contact me. I also went on to um, older lesbians Facebook group pages and posted it and asked if anyone had any other ideas. There's also these remembrance pages for some of the lesbian feminist restaurants that closed. And so I was able to contact people that way. 
it was really mixed methods. And when I talk at conferences about the work too, there would be other queer women historians who it might not be their like area of research, but they would also say, oh, I used to go to this place. You right. know? <laughs> so there was also some of that. So it really grew in different ways. And in the book itself, I have a printed version of the directory as well, because I want other people to build on this research. It was a lot of work to create these initial directories, but I want someone to look through them and find other restaurants that I missed because there's right. definitely some I missed. I did my best to look in every state, small <laughs> towns. I even have things that I found where it's like a town in Florida where it's like, this is the Denny's where we all hang out, you know? So it wasn't, <laughs> it didn't count for the project, but just trying to find these spaces. And of course they change so rapidly over time, right? Names of places change, ownership changes, but I want other people to build on this work and also be able to dive in and do more micro histories or more local histories or focused on specific states. Because one of the challenges is when you're looking at a national context or even international context with like the US and Canada is you don't always get to look at the way that all of these businesses are connecting to the other businesses in the area. So that's a benefit that you can do if you're looking at um, maybe one city or one region. And for people who are just worried about queer history, just being this history of the Eastern Seaboard and kind of San Francisco, there were a lot of spaces in the Midwest. There were spaces in the South. So I really encourage you to look into some of these places on the map and the directories that I have, because if you're thinking, oh, like, I wonder what was going on in Michigan at this time, or I'm wondering what was going on in Alaska, you'd actually maybe be surprised about what you'd find. So it's definitely a history that I would say challenges some of that emphasis just on the Eastern Seaboard and San Francisco Bay Area. That that's there, but there's also more. Right. Um. I mean, you you talk about in the book that there were over 230 different places that you've defined here throughout the U.S. What does the landscape of feminist queer women spaces, restaurants, cafes look like now versus where we start, at least in your narrative, in 1972? Yeah, for sure. I'm um, sure I also say why I started in 1972 and then talk yes, about now. Yes, please. Yeah, for sure. So it's the earliest one I found that meets the definition that I'm using. So Mother Courage in New York City in 1972. That's why it's 1972. And it got a lot of publicity at the time and was seen as this kind of like hot spot and where all these kind of like feminist stars would go to be seen. But now, 50 years later, we see kind of these new generations of feminist restaurants. So some of the changes are that, of course, feminism has changed over time, right? Intersectionality has really had a huge impact. So there's a lot of thinking about how is feminism working in terms of thinking about race, class, gender, sexual orientation, ability, and more. So again, those were thought of in the 70s, but feminism has transformed and some of the language around this has changed. There's definitely more of an emphasis on queer rather than lesbian. There's definitely a lot more emphasis on trans identities and trans acceptance. There's kind of a split like there was in the 70s and the 80s between kind of ownership by one or two people and collectives. So we see both collectives functioning today and the kind of sole proprietor model. Some of the language around why people are making those choices has changed. But so part of it is that transformations and understandings of queer politics and feminist politics emphasizes this kind of difference. The ones that started in the 70s, some of the early on ones, 
Some of the people had never worked in a restaurant before, before starting them. Some of them started out and didn't have accountants, didn't have lawyers, and were just trying to do things from scratch. There's a lot more kind of professionalization in the restaurants today. There's a lot more people who are coming in and also trying to diversify their income streams earlier on. So you have places that like, so Bloodroot also functioned as a bookstore, But now you see a lot of places that are selling things and a restaurant and hosting these formalized events. So just trying to create a bit more stability. You also see connections between the generations. So I had mentioned Augusta Yearwood in New Paltz, and she actually did her like stage or like internship for like culinary school at Bloodroot. So she did some of her training at Bloodroot. She worked with Bloodroot, co-wrote some cookbooks with them, and then started her own chocolate shops and cafes and has like a chocolate named after each of the Bloodroot women of Selma and Noel. So you have these kind of connections between generations. But again, there's like some differences in terms of like how she runs her business, um, some of her language around trans inclusion and so forth, and kind of more of like queer politics, right? And then in terms of the spaces themselves, so in the 70s and 80s, the kind of the high point was like the mid 70s to late 70s, early 80s. And then you kind of have this like kind of dying down in the 80s. And we can link this to a variety of things, changing ideas of like what feminism means and needs, moving away from creating kind of separate women's spaces, critiques around kind of like lesbian feminism, changes in economy, Reaganism has a big impact. Basically, like lesbian spaces are oftentimes a bit more vulnerable to changes in economy if they don't have as much initial capital to start. And you see a bit of a dying down of this space. Then you see a bit of a pop-up again, kind of around the 90s, but still not huge, right? So you have Mm -hmm. some of them kind of like dying off over time. Because also like running a business, a restaurant for a decade, that's huge, right? So doing it for multiple decades, any restaurant that does that is already extraordinary. But around kind of 2015, 2016, you start to see more of a resurgence of these kinds of explicitly called feminist spaces. So yes, you had social justice cafes and restaurants, but once that were explicitly called feminist, you see this resurgence. And I don't want to say that's like completely because of Trump, but you do see kind of changes in American politics in which there are definitely women and non-binary folks who are like, I need to create a space that creates the kind of space I want to be in. And I want to make centered around feminist community values. And then we kind of see this resurgence and rise again from 2015. I think it also has to do with kind of the changing nature at that time around like the power and the word feminism kind of changes a bit more. And there's a bit cultural acceptance. And then we get another kind of backlash against it too, again. So, and same thing right. kind of around like queer politics, lesbian politics. I mean, it's very complicated, right? Of like how things change and how people choose to label things. But I think we're seeing again, since 2015, this kind of rise again at the number of spaces. Just before we wrap up, what are some of the favorite stories that you uncovered while researching the book? Like what surprised you? Ooh, I love this question. Okay. So favorite stories. So there's this one moment that I think is kind of cinematic, actually. I mentioned a lot of the places didn't have a lot of money. 
And so they're trying to do everything on the cheap using sweat equity, which is basically you sweat a lot more, (laughs) like in terms of like you're doing a lot more labor to make up for the fact that you don't have money to pay for someone to do it or money to buy something new. So rather than being able to buy a new oven, you buy an old oven and you have to do a lot of work to make it usable for your restaurant, that type of thing. So there's a scene that happens in Northampton, Massachusetts, where they're able to buy at an estate sale this old oven or stove, and they didn't have the money to rent a truck to move it. So there's the scene of all of these lesbians trying to like carry the stove down the street. (laughs) And it's just like this amazing image. So I think that's one of the stories. I really take a lot of pleasure in going through the archives and being able to look at the records and the handwriting of the meeting minutes and the flyers and the posters. Like it's really, really fun. And I encourage listeners, if you've never been able to go to an archive, especially the pleasure in going to LGBTQ archives, oftentimes they're community archives. They can be a little less formal sometimes. You still often need to make an appointment, especially in a pandemic world that we've had. But it's just amazing to be able to physically connect with the materials. There's a lot of pleasure in doing that. There's those aha moments in the archives where you find this place or you find an article that kind of speaks to what you're interested in. I think in terms of these memories that have been really cool is also, it might sound strange, but it's been quite a pleasure to also look at business records. So yeah, I love looking at the concert posters and seeing whose art was on the walls. And that's like really fun. But also to dive into the nitty gritty, I actually really enjoyed nerding out to these (laughs) discussions of like tax code, which might sound terrible, but these were actually some of the things that created huge issues for these spaces. Should they become a 501c7, basically a nonprofit, or 501c3, or should they um, be registered as a for-profit business? How can they structure it so they can create like women-only events? How can they advertise to their communities? How can they create spaces where they feel safe to be out? Those were really key questions. And you find that actually a lot of times in the business documentation. And I don't know, a lot of the places I just would have loved to actually be able to go to. I mean, I've gone to some of the physical spaces of where the restaurant was just to be there um, when I go to certain towns or cities. There's so much amazing history there. And I really hope people use this project, like I mentioned before, as a place to take their own work and research. Or, you know, you don't have to do that and you can just read the book. (laughs) It will be available in paperback, but it'll also be available a couple months after in open access. So readers can also read it for free. And then I also have a podcast that's coming out that will accompany the book in which I do some interviews with other scholars who are working in related topics just to kind of bring forward more of the kind of research that I hope this project inspires and the work that's inspired me. Yeah, I mean, that's a great place to kind of plug things is, you know, when and where can people order the book? How can they get it? How do they find more about you? Yeah, so you can pre-order the book at Concordia Press's website or the University of Chicago Press's website. There's a discount code, which is Ketchum20. And then you can also through the Concordia page, once it's available open access, you can read it there. You can also uh, find the podcast and other information about my work at alexketchum.ca. There's more about the project also at thefeministrestaurantproject.com. That's also where the podcast you can also find as well as the maps. 
the directory, and I make open access versions of almost all of my work. So like the articles as well. I also have a zine on how to start a feminist restaurant based off of reading the business records from all of these spaces and with tips. And it's like a $5 zine. Basically, if you're interested in this, I've made a lot of stuff free or like very, very cheap on the topic. So, um, (laughs) and I'm also on Twitter at aketchum22, like catch22. Nice. And we'll put links to all of these in the show notes for this episode. So you can just scroll down, click on any one of those things and find more about Alex's work and check out the book and podcast. Before we say goodbye, I mean, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or mention that we haven't discussed? Anything new that's happening for you? I think the one thing is that I actually want to leave listeners with a line that is towards the end of the book, which is that if you want these spaces to exist, I really encourage you to consider how can you create those kinds of spaces in the world. We might not be able to change everything about our world, but we can kind of carve out temporary and permanent spaces in which we can gather and celebrate queer joy and celebrate feminist and social justice values. So I hope that the work that all of these amazing people did that I write about in my book, I hope that inspires you to kind of create the worlds that you want to see. It's a really, really wonderful message to end on. Thank you so much. Hopefully we'll get to, you know, actually meet in person at some point, maybe in in the next conference. Uh, Well, you know, I'm sure our paths will continue to cross. Sounds good. This was so fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you. (laughs) 